This is the current federal tax developments for the week of April the 26th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your state society of CPAs and by Kaplan Professional Education. Actually, I should say Kaplan Financial Education. You got to remember the right names for things. At Zollers, and again, broadcasting here from Phoenix, where it's a little warmer. You know, we're getting a little bit more into the summery times. We're going to get there. Where it'll be warmer. Right now, it's not too bad at all. We're definitely going to get way higher than this. But we're going to look at what's gone on this week, and a few things are going to be on our list. First, I'm going to do a brief discussion of the new proposals that have been rumored, and we'll talk about what you do, which is mainly nothing at this point in time when I'm recording right now, with regard to these new proposals, because acting at this point can almost always turn out badly. I'll phrase it that way. Yes, in retrospect, you'll probably see something you should have done as of this date, but it only makes total sense in retrospect. So we'll talk a little bit about why you don't worry so much about these proposals until we get something much closer to becoming law. We're also going to discuss about the IRS releasing some safe harbors for returns that were filed on or before December 27th in the area of deducting PPP loan expenses to keep those people from having to go back and amend returns. We have the IRS pushing a fact sheet to promote paid family leave, paid leave, I should say sick leave and family leave, payroll tax credit, that subsidy for vaccination-related issues. Uh, We'll discuss that that's not really something new, although the press covered it much like it was new this week. And we'll still go over how it works, what's there, and you know some of the issues pro and con for working with it. We also have the IRS extending what they refer to as a deviation in allowing for electronic signatures, uh, either for forms where there was no electronic signature allowed before, no signature allowed before electronically, or allowing you to accept electronic signature that doesn't have the same level of backup, shall we say, KBA, knowledge-based authentication, to use non-KBA methods to get some signatures that currently require KBA. So we'll discuss that. And interesting decision this time, this is our third uh, try at it. Basically, we had it issued once. We had extended once before. This now is the second extension. And this time they dropped the word temporary when they talked about the deviation. So don't know if that has a meaning, if it's an accident or what it is, but we'll discuss a little bit about what that might mean for the IRS going forward. And then we also had the IRS finally admit to a problem that a lot of us had figured was an IRS problem, but now we have a little bit of confirmation. And that is that certain modernized e-file payments, those payments that requested via returns filed using the modernized e-file system that should have come out on April the 15th. They didn't quite come out on April the 15th. In fact, they basically came out late last week. I think most people that I know of have told me that they have gotten their money taken out of the account now. We'll talk about what the IRS told us about that situation and what we're going to do. Well, let's start discussing with the tax bill, which I want to remind you right now, it's not really even a tax bill. It is a rumor of a tax bill. And yes, we've been told that on the 28th of April, uh, the president will outline his program. But that also probably means on the 28th of April, we still won't have actual text of a bill. You know, we'll have a proposal, which will be nice, broad, big picture items, 
uh, without necessarily all the neat little details that we know are crucial when you deal with tax issues. But nevertheless, because of the press, we're getting a lot of client discussion. Reports in the press this week told the big news story was that the maximum capital gain rate could rise to 39.6% and still have the net investment income tax involved. That means that in certain places, the effective tax rate on a capital gain, if you're in certain states, if you're on the high end of this, would be over 50%. We also have that somehow buried in this is a $1 million test. That supposedly this top rate somehow affects, it appears, I, we're not sure what we're going to test $1 million against. You get different reports when you read different stories, whether it's $1 million of adjusted gross income, $1 million of taxable income, or $1 million of capital gains. But nevertheless, we're told there's going to be a $1 million cap of some sort. So there's going to be something along those lines. We don't know what that is. There also was discussion that also got people worked up about getting rid of the current system where we have carryover basis or I should say not carryover basis, but a step-up in basis, and either going to a carryover basis system or the one that got talked about a little bit more toward the end of the week would be a deemed sale on death with a potential apparently there for $100,000 of gains you could ignore, or maybe a million, we're not sure which, in that event. So the deemed sale concept. Now, I guess the good news about that is apparently we won't have a, you know, a state tax uh, you know, they're not looking at changing that at the moment, but I don't know if that's good news if the gains are going to be taxed at the rates we're going to talk about here, uh, you know, what it would end up doing since we end up at those those potential rates. You know, what about the capital gain on death when dad dies if dad has what's a potentially taxable estate or at least one that would be taxable if, you know, we went back to a three and a half million dollar exclusion or whatever level we're looking at. Uh, Getting a capital gain exclusion, well, you know, capital gain tax immediately, that could be a fun problem. But the real thing to remember is all of this currently represents pure speculation. And all we have are these reports. Now, I know clients are going to tell you that they know this is going to happen, that it's guaranteed. Quite amazing how they know. I know one thing I know about any legislative body is it's not guaranteed. I don't care what you think. Uh, don't believe me, repeal and replace. I keep going back to that. If there was anything that appeared a slam dunk after the election in 2016, it was that repeal and replace was going to be passed almost immediately. In fact, members of Congress believed that would happen. And as we know, it, yeah, it did not happen. You also may remember in tax, let's take you to a tax one a little closer, if you remember, also around that time, we were talking about things like the border adjustable tax or border adjustment tax. I forget what we call it. But the BAT, you know, the BAT was backed by Kevin Brady, chair of Ways and Means, backed by the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan at the time. Uh, you know, the Republicans now had taken over the House, Senate, and the White House. It's like, oh, man, we need to learn about the BAT. And the BAT's going to be doing these awful things. Uh, yeah, it turned out the BAT was not terribly popular. That <laughs> did become clear pretty quickly. But in any event, we're not doing it. So bills like this will change over time. It is highly unlikely that we will get a bill dropped on us on Wednesday and that it will clear the House and the Senate in a week or something and be on the president's desk. 
more likely it will take significant time to negotiate. It will go through various changes. And even if we assume we're going to do this only with votes on the Democratic side of the aisle, uh, just like we did it with only Republican votes for the TCJA. Remember how the TCJA came and at the end and how many ways it changed? The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was passed by the House was not the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that we finally got. Don't believe me? Are you paying self-employment tax on your S-corporation flow through earnings? If your answer is no, I will remind you the original TCJA would have had that happen, would have brought together equivalents between S-corporations and partnerships. So it's really tough even when a party appears to be in control, there's going to be disagreements about what to do. And the real danger we have right now is taking any action that has consequences that we can't undo and that depends on certain things happening. And presumably there are things we would not do if the law didn't change because we haven't done them yet, right? So presumably that's a bad thing. And I am reminded of a situation I became aware of many years ago, right around 20 into 2010, I got asked about a situation, not a client, but got asked about a situation uh, where a, you know, individual had decided that if you remember 2010, that was when the estate tax went away for a year. But in 2011, we were going to come back with an estate tax that was a million dollar cap period. You know, that was going to be the amount you could have passed tax-free. We would go back to relatively high rates above a million dollars. And for that one year in 2010, while gifts were still, you know, no estate tax, so you could die and pass unlimited funds on to your kids. But what happened in 2010 was gifting still had the million-dollar cap. Now, the rates were not nearly as high when you went above a million dollars in 2010 as it'd be in 11. Well, of course, some people were sure that Barack Obama would never sign a tax bill that, you know, continued the any sort of exclusion anywhere close to the 3.5 million that we had in 2009. And that in fact, we'd be down at a million. He just needs to do nothing. That's what's going to happen. In fact, he was in a lot better position to do that, right? He just needed to veto it, and as long as he couldn't, they couldn't get two-thirds in both houses to override him, it wasn't going to happen. So, you know, well, it seemed like a sure thing. So dad went, decided, you know, had an estate about $4 million, decided that, okay, he'd already given away a million previously to the kids, so he maxed that out. He'd give away another million. That would get rid of a million dollars out of his estate and get the gift tax on out of the estate. He was comfortable that he had enough to live on otherwise. Okay, all well and good. Does that early in the year for reasons that, yeah, well, you know, it, it's a given, right? It's a sure thing, so let's do it now. Turns out, come December, Barack Obama signed a bill that gave us the $5 million lifetime exemption and gave us portability, right? And so we have never been near the $1 million limitation. And the problem was now in January, dad would like to undo this gift. Well, you can't really undo it. You know, when asked for the fix, I said, well, the only real fix, if you're going to talk about that as a fix, short of tax fraud, it seemed difficult to come up with a fix because you had already actually transferred all of this stuff to the kids. And it's clear you transferred it, and now you're going to go back and just pretend it never happened. Yeah, that's kind of a problem. So like I say, keep your eye on it. What I do think you want to do this week is... 
Obviously, pay attention to what's announced on Wednesday. Certainly, if we get bill text, you start looking at it, but don't commit to it. You know, don't worry about that text being exactly what's going to happen. You need to be aware. You need to be aware there's a high likelihood of change, and that change could be better or worse. Also, be aware if people start saying, do this right now, this is the perfect way around this, because then you run into the Wall Street Journal rule, as I refer to it. Uh, that is, if somebody writes up what a wonderful way there is to get around something in the journal, uh, we will guarantee you that if we're in the middle of writing a bill, Congress will patch that. And if we're not in the middle of writing a bill, the IRS will, by regulation, undo it. So it's not a good idea to you know, go down that path. Uh, the most recent Wall Street Journal rule issue we had was when people talked about crack and pack options for getting around the getting around the uh, 199 cap A restriction. You know, for those of us who had, you know, service businesses. So the you know the service businesses that couldn't claim 199 cap A, we did the whole. The theory was, oh, they're going to do crack and pack and break them up into pieces, and so kick out our admin staff into an administration, administrative services business owned by the partners of the law firm, the accounting firm, and then the law accounting firm will pay lots of money for those services, and that'll flow through to the owners, and they'll get their 199 cap A. Because we, you know, we're not going to have that problem. It's like, yeah, it didn't work. Shut down by the IRS pretty quickly. So be aware of that here. So just fair warning. Once we get bill text, I'll probably discuss some basics, but I won't go into deep details. And more importantly, we'll probably look at it seriously if we get to a conference bill or at least something that it appears both the House and Senate are going to pass, then we'll start worrying about the bill. But until then, I'm not going to spend a lot of time worrying about it. Okay, let's go to our first great real development, something that's actually we can put our hands around. Revenue Procedure 2021-20. This came out on April the 22nd, and the IRS put together a safe harbor for those taxpayers who filed a tax return on or before December 27th, 2020, probably mainly fiscal year C corporations, right? You did that. The C corporation had gotten a Paycheck Protection Program loan, right? And you may remember we were told by former Treasury Secretary Mnuchin that Tax 101 said that if you got forgiven the debt and you got forgiveness if you use that money to, you know, pay expenses and the debt itself would be non-taxable, the forgiveness would be non-taxable, well, then Tax 101 says you get no deduction for the expenses. And the IRS put out a series of what we'll call the Tax 101 revenue rulings, or notices, other guidance that told us, essentially, yeah, guys, you can't get this. Now, you may remember that certain members of Congress were not happy. In fact, three of the four ranking members on the main tax writing committees in the House and Senate uh, penned a letter specifically uh, stating they were unhappy with this and they'd worked to override it. And late in the year, on December 27th, we did finally get that reversal. Congress, in the COVID-related Tax Relief Act, said you get full forgiveness that we already had in the CARES Act, but that's non-taxable. But any expenses paid with the loan are fully deductible. IRS, keep your hands off this. So now we have a problem, though, because that's a retroactive provision. And the problem really was that obviously some people had already filed returns using the IRS guidance. 
Well, they had already filed. So let's say at a June 30 year end for your corporation, you had gotten a PPP loan early on. You had spent a number of those funds on things that could lead to forgiveness. You were expecting to get full forgiveness per the IRS eventual ruling. That meant that you were supposed to go ahead and treat those expenses as non-deductible. And let's say you, you, were, you were somebody who followed the IRS notices and you didn't deduct it. Well, now your problem is your return's wrong. And that's a bigger problem because the hitch is that you have to deduct things in the year in which the law allows the deduction. So if I didn't deduct those expenses June 30, 2020's return, I can't just normally pick them up on the June 30, 2021 return as a deduction when the IRS changed their mind because they weren't incurred in that year. However, the IRS has said because of this particular issue and because the returns were correct when filed, the IRS will now allow you to make an election to claim the deduction for those expenses in the following year, the immediate following year. Now, to do this, you do have to do a few things. First thing is you have to be what's called a covered taxpayer. And bottom line, a covered taxpayer generally is going to be somebody who got a loan, paid or incurred expenses during your 2020 taxable year, and on or before December 27, 2020, you timely filed, including extensions if necessary, a federal income tax return or information return, that would be like a partnership return, 1120S, that's why we talk about information return, because that's what those are, as applicable for your 2020 tax year. And on that tax return, you basically did not claim a deduction for expenses that either led to PPP loan forgiveness, because you got forgiveness before you know, you, you already knew you'd been forgiven by the time you filed your return, or that you expected to lead to forgiveness. And if you did that, it works fine. Now, the one problem is if you, let's say, some taxpayer did not keep up and didn't realize on December 27th, let's say December 28th, the next day, that the law had changed and that on the 28th, they should now claim that full deduction. If they deduct, if they left it off the return, let's say for the 2020, December 31st, 2020 return, or even a November 30, 2020 return, or October, whatever that, that you filed after December 27th, that's not granted this relief. And that's somewhat interesting because even though the law did pass, and we know it passed on December 27th, the IRS did not formally revoke their rulings that's, you know, that people were relying on previously until January 25th. So the problem here is it appears the IRS believes that taxpayers and their advisors have a responsibility to understand when a law change takes place that you have to follow the law change not previous IRS guidance if that guidance is contrary to the law. Or as I phrase it, you needed to recognize on the 28th that that 5,500-page document that had been signed into law the day before contained this provision that invalidated what ended up being three different IRS rulings regarding dealing with these loan expenses. Now, the good news is if you're going to do this, 
um, you know, basically there are some things not covered and some of it makes sense. First thing is, and they feel they have to say this, I guess, for whatever reason. If, let's say, you became aware that Congress was going to allow that larger list of expenses, you know, because there are various expenses we were able to add to our items that would get us a for, get us forgiveness, like those, you know, supply expenses that could count, you know, other things that were involved that were allowable, those, you know, COVID protection, personal protective equipment expenses, etc. They're saying if you didn't deduct those, you're not covered by this because those did not become part of the PPP loan forgiveness until the same day you were told that you're going to be allowed to deduct them. So none of that works as well. Don't try to do this if you excluded things related to a PPP2 loan, which seems kind of obvious because you couldn't get a PPP2 loan until after December 27th, until actually sometime in January. So they do feel the need to say that. I think that's kind of obvious. Uh, and the IRS can still challenge whether you qualified for the safe harbor and obviously challenge the expenses in question. They're not giving that up. And you can't say, nope, can't challenge them because they're really the prior year. You're not going to let you do that. Now, if you want to make this election, you make it with the return for the year following the year that ended in 2020 when you didn't claim the deduction. So it's immediate following return. Uh, you're going to attach a statement to the return that must be titled Revenue Procedure 2021-20 Statement. And if you're electronically filing, it actually, they give us a specific file name for the attachment, RevProc2021-20.pdf, no spaces anywhere in that, has to be the name of the attachment. That particular statement is going to give the taxpayer's name, address, and ID number a statement they're applying the safe harbor found in Revenue Procedure 2020-21, found at Section 3.01 of that, the amount and date of disbursements of your original PPP loan, the first draw loan, and a list including descriptions and amounts of the original eligible expenses paid or incurred during the 2020 tax year are going to be reported on the following year's return. So that goes on. So again, you would put this on, let's say you did have a, June 30, 2020 return, corporate return. You're going to put this statement on the June 30, 2021 return if you didn't deduct those expenses. Now, the alternative is pretty obvious. You can just go back and amend the 2020 return. And, you know, you might not want to do that because it's going to be a hassle. It's going to be a mess. Secondly, though, you're also going to need to worry a little bit about whether your state will allow this to happen anyway. I feel that most states that are conformity in most states are conforming states of some form and that have conformed on this treatment will probably follow this revenue procedure as well. But do keep an eye on it. And remember, the client might want you to go back there because in theory, in 2020, that could add to an NOL that could go back to prior years. In this case, you know, maybe not. So we have to see how it goes. Now, another big thing that kind of ended up happening this week is a new announcement. It's not really anything new, but suddenly the president gave a speech. The IRS posted a news release and a fact sheet. And a lot of us, I know, tax Twitter is kind of funny. The morning when this stuff first started, all of us are like, did we miss something? You know, is this, it's like, I thought we had this. And, you know, so there was a lot of back and forth. And we finally figured out that, yeah, nothing had really changed. 
This is an IRS fact sheet, FS 2021-09, and as I say, a news release and also a speech by the president the same day on April the 21st that discussed this American Rescue Plan, uh, you know, the, the sick pay under this. And if you remember, sick pay and paid leave, sick pay and paid family leave, payroll tax credits were extended and modified by the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA. Right, We had that in there. And one of the key changes, as we've discussed when it came out, was that added to the list of conditions, situations that would allow you to give an employee time off pay them for the time off, and qualify for the payroll tax credit up to $511 a day for the paid sick leave or up to $200 a day for the credit involved for paid family leave would be anything related to COVID-19 vaccinations, anything related to uh, reactions to the COVID-19, right? And if somebody... At, let's say, because a lot of people have reported at the second vaccination, right? That, you know, at the, when they get the second vaccination in most of the two vaccination series, that they've been down for a half a day, a day, day and a half. You know, they had to just kind of like stop, not do anything, stop doing it. I've heard of that from a number of people. It was not my experience. My experience was I got my shot and I came back and continued working the full day that day, the full day the next. Now, I've kind of, we've kind of joked that, well, maybe it's just because of tax season. How could you tell if you were run down? But nevertheless, in any event, so like I said, my, my second shot, that wasn't really a reaction of any sort. And I've also talked with, you know, my, my father had no reaction. My brother had a headache, you know, a pretty nasty headache for about six hours and then disappeared. So you could pay for both the vaccines, you know, two vaccines, potentially, if you're talking about the uh, you know, other than the single vaccine shot. So you're talking about the mRNA vaccines. We're talking about two shots. And you could also pay for the time that the employee might have to take off for reactions to the shot. And the government would basically give you that money back through payroll taxes, right? Remember that? The good old thing where you offset your payroll tax deposit. If it's greater than your payroll tax deposit, you could go form 7200 and get your refund directly to you, or you can just wait and get the money back when you file the 941. So you really have three different ways to run it. Now, a couple of things to remember about this. The IRS did put out a fact sheet, which is good, pretty decent, discusses the basics of this. I do want to remind you of a couple of things the fact sheet does not state. First thing is, please remember that this version, and this only goes from April 1st to September 30. So if you paid for employees to get vaccinated or you're self-employed and you got vaccinated prior to April 1st, which I got vaccinated prior to April 1st, you know, I, I got both of them before that, the second one just before that date. Uh, no, you, you can't go back and retroactively claim the credit or, or claim the, you know, claim the credit either for payroll that you paid people or for, you know, the self-employed version of this that you'll get on next year's return. By the way, as one person on tax Twitter pointed out, yes, you probably have to ask clients next year who are self-employed, did you get vaccinated? And if you did, was it before or after April 1st? Because if it's after April 1st and before June 30, 
then you probably qualify for this tax credit and we'll have to compute it. Kind of interesting things. But the thing to remember is, though, you can only get this credit if your plan does not discriminate in favor of the highly compensated employees, cannot discriminate in favor of full-time employees versus non-full-time employees, or on the basis of tenure with the employer. So you can't say that you know, you're going to pay for time off for vaccinations for employees who have been with the firm for at least six months. You can't say that you're going to pay time off for full-time but not part-time. You can't do pick and choose with the highly compensated, you know, pay for the officers to get their vaccinations but not give the rank and file the time. Basically, you have to have a relatively non-discriminatory program. Now, as I read the law, I see nothing there that says, though, that you cannot pick and choose as long as you don't discriminate by basis of those categories. You could, yes, have a program that only paid for time off for vaccination and for the reactions and potentially not pay for time off for the other, at least not go down the time off route for the other items that qualify for this. So I think that choice is available and employers may want to do that. Obviously, the key reason why they were doing it, I think that makes that everybody knows, is this past week, we saw we hit the peak and now the number of vaccines being administered per week is going down, not because of lack of supply, but because of reduction of demand. There just aren't as many people going out to get it now. And this is a way they're going to try to encourage people who weren't really motivated. You know, and I, I remember hearing uh, former FDA Commissioner Gottlieb uh, discussing, saying, yeah, what we had was initially you had all these people that were willing to jump through hoops, willing to, you know, spend time in line, were willing to, you know, do whatever it took to get the vaccine. They were highly motivated. What's remaining now is, you know, the highly motivated people got vaccinated. Now we're looking at the not so highly motivated, not necessarily against being vaccinated, but just don't feel it's a priority right away. You know, it'll something they'll do when they get around to it. And so the idea is, at least in theory, it appears that the government is thinking that this will be a way to uh, help motivate those people if they don't want to go do it because they're afraid of, you know, I just can't afford the time off from work. That's the theory. They're trying to get employers to do that. So anyway, it is kind of an interesting run. If you've not looked at it, I do have it written up in the um, in my write-up for the week, the PDF you can download related to this program from our website at currentfederaltaxdevelopments.com. You can go see there and find out about it and see what's exactly going on and take a look at how this works. We have the full thing pretty much written up there. But yeah, that's part of what's happening there. The not new, new thing. Next up, let's talk about something that is a continuation of something. And this is uh, basically a memorandum entitled Temporary Deviation from Handwritten Signature Requirements for a Limited List of Tax Forms, NHQ-10-0421-0002. It was actually issued on April the 15th. You may remember we talked about last year, the IRS at a point said, look, because we understand that due to COVID-19, uh, some taxpayers and some advisors are concerned about meeting to get things physically signed. Well, and in some cases, it was just virtually impossible. If you had a client, let's say, that was elderly, that was living in a care facility, 
you know, that, that really was, you know, that, that is used to always meeting with the CPA and having the CPA, you know, there to help them sign stuff. There were all kinds of reasons why, or let's say they just don't have mobility. I think, I don't know they're going to help online help them much, I guess, but they have mobility problems. Then it would be an issue, right? They're, they They can't get out. You know, they're not really mobile. They don't want to leave the facility, but you couldn't go in. And they, you know, they, they really, really, you know, you know, you, you really need to kind of get that document signed by them and back. Well, using electronic signature options, you, that's pretty clear there. You know, you kind of force where the signature goes. You make sure all things are filled out. It can take care of a lot of that stuff. But the IRS generally did not allow you to use things like DocuSign uh, for this purpose or similar products, right signature. Uh, for this, unless you, unless first, only for a very limited number of things could you use products that were digital signatures. And then number two, you almost always had to do that using a knowledge-based authentication system to go with it, which is not something any of those products provide by default and which they tend to charge a significant amount for to, you know, relatively more significant amount if you want that kind of thing before you clear up the signature. So you know, we had that background. So what they did, they published a short list last summer, then came back a little bit later and published a longer list, right? In both cases, they told us it was a temporary, right? December said this is a temporary deviation. Now they issue this new memorandum. Previously, the temporary, the temporary deviation was to end at June 30 of this year. Now the memo no longer says temporary, and but the memo does still have an expiration date on the memo of December 31st. What's also somewhat important here is that they actually did add quite a few items to the list. And so again, if you get this, go to our website, take a look at the article, or download the PDF with all of our articles for this week. You're going to find out that we end up getting, you know, like the entire 706 series basically is in there now. You know, the 709s are in there. A number of 1120 series forms, not the regular 1120, or 1120S, but a number of others that could not be done electronically. Um, you know, various other things, uh, application to change your tax return year, 3115, which was there before, uh, 3520s, which I believe were there before. Uh, but and one other thing to point out, which was there before as well, but you need to be aware of it is all of the form 8453 series, 8878 and 8879 series forms. Now, those are series, which means any of those forms dash whatever or just that form by itself. And those are the forms to authorize electronic filing. Now, that's interesting inclusion for a couple of reasons. Number one. For the 8879, the individual e-file form, the IRS already allowed digital signatures on that form. But you were required to get, you know, basically knowledge-based authentication where they ask people questions that is, that's available publicly or comes from a credit bureau that, you know, they should be able to answer that other people would not be able to answer. So they have that information, right? And then that they try to clear that. The IRS generally required that for authentication. However, in this case, 
This memo says, it has a footnote, which is interesting. It says electronic and digital signatures appear in many form when printed and may be created by many different technologies. No specific technology is required for this purpose during this, and they saw the word temporary in this footnote, temporary deviation. That appears to mean that you could get an 8879 filed with a non-KBA-based signature program. Secondly, about those electronic filing programs, the IRS has effectively stated through non-binding guidance that those other forms cannot be signed except by pen and ink. You couldn't do an electronic signature on them. They weren't authorized. And that much is probably correct. The IRS has the, IRS has the authority to authorize it, but they hadn't authorized any of the others. However, at this point, now it appears authorized. So you can apparently send the client a, you know, 80 whatever that you need for a corporation, an S corporation, a partnership, right? Those sorts of things and have the client sign that using something like DocuSign Right Signature. Uh, you might use KBA, you might not. KBA gets a little more complicated there because, you know, uh, theoretically, they probably want to KBA the officer, not KBA the corporation. So it'd be a little weirder, but that's okay. But apparently you can just skip that as well. And as noted, you know, the IRS is supposed to accept this in theory, you know, when you mail the return to them. So let's say you could present a client with a 706. They could sign it electronically. You can then print out that version that comes back to you with the electronic signature on it. And the IRS is supposed to accept that. The lack of the word temporary suggests that the IRS may be considering, and they have said this before, they first announced this, they were going to look how things were going. We may see the IRS make some of this more permanent and put together a more permanent document. So be aware of that. That could be coming up. So keep your eye on this. We may see the IRS allow a lot more digital signatures in the future post-pandemic. I suppose the big reason for that is the concern was obviously there'd be major fraud. You know, there'd be all this ID theft, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the IRS now has been accepting these for the year, and we haven't heard about any significant problems. So it may be now the IRS figures having run this long test that kind of got forced on them that, hey, okay, we're, we're okay. We know this will work. We can go ahead and just accept it. Finally, the IRS admitted this week that there was a little problem with payments on April the 15th. This is a quick alert, technical delay in processing forms 1040, 1040X, and 1040ES payments submitted via modernized e-file. And this was a statement on the IRS's website in their quick alert section, which decided to get this emailed. You may never have seen it. But it came up on April the 22nd that they had this come up. A lot of us had clients that noticed that withdrawals that were supposed to take place on April the 15th did not. Why were they going to have money come out of the 15th? Well, A, it might have been they filed the return early in tax season and took the automatic withdrawal because you, know, you told them, yeah, you do this, it'll come out April the 15th. And as we all know, just like last year when Congress kicked back the dates, IRS could not automatically move those dates back. All you could do is cancel that and then pay going to the IRS Direct Pay website or pay with a voucher through the mail, which is really going to be risky, but you can try it. 
uh, but they couldn't have any way to reschedule that payment. So I think we probably awed a few clients who had filed returns early in the year, had balances due, and were sitting there expecting the balances, you know, the amounts to be pulled out on April 15th. And then they weren't. Other clients may have had you schedule their four-quarter estimates. And even if their payment for the 1040 was now scheduled to come out on May the 17th, as we all know, the estimated tax payment was due on April 15th. Well, those payments didn't come out. That caused a lot of concern. I know I had a client that was very concerned that maybe she should go ahead and pay, send more money at them. I said, no, nah, it's probably not a good idea. This is clearly their glitch because I've been seeing it all across the country. People running different tax software, people doing different things. So I would hold up and wait and see what comes of this. A week later, April the 22nd, the IRS finally posted this admission. They have a problem, right? At that date, they said, yeah, we got a problem. And what they say was that we identified a delay in processing Form 1040 balance due Form 1040X amended and Form 1040ES estimated tax payment requests submitted via modernized e-file. The issue has been resolved and pending payments were being processed. They also made clear that the clients will get credit for having paid on April 15th. So clients who are concerned their payments would be late, they'll be penalized. No, the IRS are going to make that based on the request to date. They also strongly suggest you do not send additional money in. And in fact, the reason they do that is because there's really no way to easily get the money back until the IRS eventually processes it as an overpayment. And if it was for the estimates for 2021, it won't be over an overpayment until the 2021 return. So the best you can do in that case would be to reduce the second estimate if you end up paying to first. And so, yeah, they're, they're saying really, really don't don't do that. They did say if you had, you know, if you had started another payment, you could try to call to cancel. But yeah, that's like I I understand. But I think it's going to be very rare. Most kind most cases, people would have gone use direct pay, and would have you know paid through that mechanism. I guess theoretically, this could have been restarted through the MEF in some way. I'm not sure how. But apparently they're a little concerned. If you did that, they gave you a method where you could cancel as long as you did so two days before the money's supposed to come out. Of course, clients all being worried that they were late and they're going to be charged, you know, this hefty penalty for every day they're late. They probably weren't scheduling payments, so it'd be two days out. So in any event, that should be taken care of now. You are going to get credited on the original date. And again, do not have clients pay again. My take is today, uh, I've heard from all the clients that I had talked to, and they have all told me that, yeah, it came out. You know, late this past week, it came out. So it's there. Make a note of it. Now, I will tell you, I have seen scattered reports of a problem with one particular tax vendor. I will not mention the name uh, simply because I haven't seen enough to confirm. And the, what I'm seeing is a little different, different sources. But there may be a problem with one vendor, and I believe they sent out an email some sort of notice uh, to their customers about it, where they apparently had their own foul up. And uh, you may find that a payment scheduled for April 15th just now has never been scheduled. It was scheduled in certain time frames. And that money's not coming out. That appears to be unrelated to this problem, uh, but it will look like this problem. 
you know, both of them as the money didn't come out. So ju just be aware of that. You might want to check with your tax vendor. If the money's not come out, I might check with the vendor now and make sure I don't have no, any problem uh, again. And if you're with that vendor, you probably know who you are. I would just say in that case, I'm just saying, keep your eye on that, though. There is that report out there uh, that's going on. And again, I don't know about how exactly how detailed it was. I do know I saw some reports were it only mattered if you'd done it during a very narrow time frame, requested the payment. So, yeah, one of those odd things. So this has been Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of April the 27th of 20, uh, 2021. Remember the right years these days. Again, so we're heading into getting close. It's going to be the last week of April. And then we're going to go to our new tax day. Last year it was July. This year, May. We get a different tax day every year. Uh, but in any event, we'll take a look. We'll see what comes up. Uh, if we get actual bill text, I may mention whatever the president talks about on Wednesday uh, next week. But I have a feeling I'm probably going to decide it's not worth digging into until we get a lot closer to being passed. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of hurdles to clear, and I'm not sure how easily they'll clear them. So yeah, don't I know traditionally I just don't get too excited about bills until we get to final bills. Sometimes I don't have much choice. Uh, sometimes we do it. I did violate that rule on TCJA. So unfortunately, I know way more about the not Section 199 way they're going to try to do it in the House than I'd ever care to know because that's utterly useless knowledge. Just about as useful as knowing how the bat was going to work, which I also got into because, you know, they were talking a lot about the bat. So, you know, you started looking at it. Yeah, it'll be worthless knowledge. And it's tax season. We don't really have time to build up worthless knowledge. So, you know, I'll probably take a look at that sometime later, preferably when we're further along and how it's going to go. But otherwise, check back in here next week, and we'll talk to you about whatever does come up and things that do count immediately in federal taxes and update you on any other sort of interesting developments that come up as we look at this world of federal taxes and work our way toward this year's end of tax season.